Welcome. It is episode 80 of the Saints FC podcast. Um, I'm John Bailey. I am here and you may notice that we don't have Mr. Tom Parker with us this week. Uh, Tom Parker is on paternity leave from the podcast um, as he's been welcoming to the world uh, Beatrice, Matthew Letizia, Francis Benali, stick that 9-0 up your backside. <laughs> Ralph Hassenhutel is a god Parker. So big welcome to Beatrice to the world and a big welcome to Carl Anker. Um, onto the podcast again uh i think you are you're tom parker's paternity cover how, do, how does that feel carl <laughs> i'm honored yeah i love being the emergency cover. <laughs> um of course ladies and gentlemen uh you've you've heard carl on previous uh episodes he's the man who writes the fantastic articles for the athletic if you haven't got a subscription yet um you really are missing out on probably the best writing about southampton um that is out there carl are there any offers that that our listeners can can take up at the moment from the athletic or have they all gone with the christmas and new year there is always a athletic.co.uk slash free trial so you get a month for free um, just to dip your toe in yeah so bespoke journalism for all 20 Premier League clubs, clubs in the Championship, as well as buckets and buckets of information on the American League, so NBA, NFL. So come come for the Saints and then stay for the NFL, the American um, stuff. Also, there's there's been a few other guests that we've had on here as well. Michael Cox is um one of the writers on The Athletic, and he, he's given us quite interesting stuff about his books in the past before. So there's lots of great stuff on there. Um, and you can occasionally hear you on the Totally Football Show as well with James Richardson. And you have another podcast that you're on as well called, is it Talking Tactics, Carl? Have I got that right? Yes, indeed. Talking Tactics is a podcast I, uh, I set up with a couple of friends around about 2016. Um, so I try and do that as many times as possible in a week. I might be doing that this week. Ah, okay. Um, Living by Google Calendar right now. Yeah. Um, so, Carl, because uh, Tom kind of disappeared uh, into the hospital with his wife um, to, to welcome their little one to the world, um, we've not done a podcast for two weeks, which means that there are three Southampton games to talk about and there's three wins and you're in a very privileged position because I think since the, very f- since the, the time that we started this podcast... I don't think we've had three Saints wins to talk about in one episode before. Um, <laughs> normally, every episode, you know, if we do two fixtures, one of them is tainted in some way with like some dreadful collapse towards the end of the game. But here we are. We've got three victories to talk about. Um, I think, did you miss out on the Saints Spurs one? Was that whilst Jack Lang was covering you? Or were you there? Yes, it was. Yeah. So we had. It was uh, New Year's Day was covered by Jack Lang, who. Uh, Thankfully, covered my two games over over the Christmas break. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Jack, um, uh, for that. Uh, we'll quickly kind of 
skip over the Spurs game then because I, I think everyone's kind of probably talked about that quite a lot. Um, then we had the FA Cup third round match, uh, the game against Huddersfield, which is probably most um, exciting for the kind of performances of the two young goal scorers who've come up from the Saints Academy. And then we have uh, the Leicester game to talk about as well that... Um, I suppose revenge, the 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 turnaround from you know, the awful kind of a nine nil victory victory that Leicester had earlier on St Mary's, which we don't like to talk about too much, but is somehow probably going to be etched on our minds forever. Um, Carl Saints versus Spurs. So I know you weren't at the game, but I don't know if you've seen the highlights. Probably one of the things which I really wanted to talk about in this game um, was. I suppose the goal and the vision from Jack Stevens, who played that absolutely lovely ball to Ings um, over the top from the back. And then Ings, you know, whether he was channeling uh, Paul Gascoigne or Matthew Letizia, but the takeover out of Arald, leaving him on his knees, sliding towards goal and then leaving Gazaniga stuck to the ground. I mean, what a way to make two ex-Saints look, look silly and also make... You know, Jack Stevens look like you know one of the greatest ball playing defenders of our time. It's remarkable, isn't it? Uh, it it's a very Tom uh, Hotspur esque goal. It all reminded you of the days of peak Pochettino at both Southampton because uh, Pochettino did enjoy a, a long diagonal being played by centre back to a very very talented number nine. So yeah, it was. It was great. Apologies to Dave Watson, who I, the goalkeeping coach, the former goalkeeping coach and now the assistant at Southampton, who I believe is the man that Mourinho referred to as an idiot. But the great thing about that victory was Spurs didn't really come close. It was done. Southampton outplayed, outran, outpressed, outthank uh, a Tom Hotspur team, which you know, looks on the way of being in a bit of trouble right now. The yeah. turnaround of Southampton in the last couple of weeks is remarkable, uh, and I, I've said I said this in the aftermath of the victory over Chelsea, where it took maybe twenty minutes. Where you're watching Southampton play a team now, where your brain goes from "this game is really really bad" to "oh wait, no, this game isn't bad. This game is good because Southampton is clearly doing something to distract the opposition." <laughs> it's not. Tom Hotspur playing bad. It's Tom Hotspur playing bad because Southampton are making them play bad because they're pressing so well. They're hunting in tactics. They're making, you know, supposedly some of the best players in Europe misplay passes and they're intercepting through balls and whatnot. And they're, you know, springing counter attacks really, really well. This is the joy of watching Southampton now. They're, they can make even the best teams in England look like fools. And that's, I suppose kind of one of the complaints you always have as a Southampton fan is whenever you have a victory like this, it's always, the talk is always about what's gone wrong at Spurs. Why has Mourinho not been able to have the effect? Why has he not got Tottenham, you know, defensively, um, you know, sorted yet when that's normally what, what he gets, you know, what he gets sorted quite early on. So let's focus on Southampton and what they did right. How how did Southampton manage to stop Tottenham playing? Because as, as a Saints fan, like I've watched Southampton play Tottenham plenty of times, you know, many of them recently. And if there's some one thing that is always guaranteed, it's that Harry Kane will score against us. If Harry Kane doesn't score against us, Deli Alley will definitely score against us. Um, neither of them scored against us. 
you know, despite the fact both of them were playing. Uh, Deli Ali seemed to be more focused on diving than he did on, on scoring. And, and Harry Kane just didn't really get a look in, did he? Had one chance and then he went off injured. Yeah, it's um, clamp down. So Southampton is pressing far better than anyone else in the Premier League right now. It's this remarkable little thing where you consider over the Christmas break you have so many games. You look at teams like Bournemouth, you look at Crystal Palace, you look at nearly everyone has someone who's injured, right? And you look at how Southampton have no real injuries. The only real problem is the end batteries. And so hats off to medical team to keep everyone fit. So not only is everyone else in the Premier League you know, either injured or knackered, but Southampton are fit and also for some miraculous reason they want they want to run harder than everyone else. So it's it's this great thing of they're just doing jobs on teams that aren't ready for it because they're going, oh, it's Southampton. They kind of want to press, but no. But what's happened is you're getting the most organised press in the Premier League right now coming from a team that has a bunch of players that are completely fit that have a very, very clear idea of what they want to do. They've got these, you know, if you listen to a Ralph Hassel press conference, they talk about automatisms, which are these sorts of small rehearsed sequences of football play. So basically, when the opposition does this, I have to do this. Or when I get the ball here, I need to pass it to this person, then I have to pass it to this person. Really, you know, short choreographed moves. And we've reached the point in the season when the Southampton players know exactly what they need to do. They're really, really fit and firing. And they're executing it against players that are kind of knackered. So there's a really interesting sequence Southampton have now when they basically invite a team to press against them. You'll suck in the number nine and the number 10 from the opposition. So Daly Allen and Harry King will maybe go, oh, I'm going to try and get the ball. And then Jack Stevens will pass to Benarek. And then Benarek will pass to Bertrand. Bertrand will bomb forward. And then Bertrand has a choice. Either he underlaps or he overlaps with Nathan Redmond. And eventually, either work is going to get to get the shot off or Redmond has a shot himself. That is, that's what they do. And they'll try and do that three or four times a game if the opposition tries to press them. And they, you know, when you can do that over and over and over again with the fitness levels of the top six sides, which they pretty much have nowadays, you're going to start getting some really nice results. Oh, and thank God for that, because I think the last time we spoke, Carl, Saints were in pretty bad shape. Um, and I think it got worse before it got better after the last time we spoke. I, I can't remember exactly when it was, um, but I think we were speaking maybe in October before. Um and lots of bad things that have happened since then. But then there's been this this like wonderful turnaround. Um, we've talked about the pressing. The other thing which I think has been a big part of the turnaround is Ralph going back to the 4-2-2-2 formation. And for me, I, d- I don't know, it seems like the Arsenal game was was the turning point. And that, that seemed to be the kind of big shift in terms of the energy levels, the press, the formation, and it came off the back of that international break. Am I right to think that's the turning point? Because, you know, lots of people will tell you it was the Leicester City game and that was the wake-up call that Southampton needed, which I think in some ways is true. We did need that wake-up call, but then we had the awful Everton performance after that. So I I can't really say that that is a turnaround. I think the Leicester 9-0 put a rocket up everyone. Or, no, maybe that's the wrong way to say I think the lesson nine nil revealed in a very public way everything that had gone wrong at Southampton. There was nothing like it. Uh, so the interesting thing about Southampton is obviously they're they, you know they're not televised too often. They maybe get about eight. They've got eight televised games last season. Uh, they're on par to get maybe eight, ten televised games this season. 
on. They don't typically, they're not typically shown on television. So it can be quite easy to not know what's going on week to week, what's going wrong with Southampton when they're going through these bad runs of form. But this, you know, the Leicester game, it was on Friday night television, it was on Sky Sports, you know, the, everyone who was interested in Premier League football you know, probably tried watching it a little bit. And if they weren't watching it from kickoff, they, you know, they probably told someone, mate, Southampton against hockey, you should, you should switch on. So I think the 9-0 made everyone understand all the, well, begin to understand the bad things that are going on in Southampton. So the problems with recruitment, the uh, lack of, uh, or the, you know, the slight, you know, the trickle of the academy system, of the academy, or, or the lack of footballing knowledge around Raph House football, or the perhaps lack of senior club officials above Raph House football have bad footballing experience. So I think that, the 9-0 was useful for that. But yeah, you know, the Everton game, I always said the Everton game was far worse than said it and I think and uh, James Will Prowse has said it now as well that basically the, the revival side of the international break really really shows you you know if we play this style of football this style of football will work and, and I think the, uh, the Arsenal game helps prove that if they play in that style of football they can get results because they should have beaten Arsenal to be honest with you it took a 96 minute um, somewhat gawking mistake from McCarthy and a little bit of brilliance from Lacazette to save Arsenal in that game they should have beaten Arsenal I think since then, they're going, oh, wow, playing in a back four really is the best way to defend. Or, oh, wow, if you play in this midfield to Joey Bergen, Woodhouse, that does offer you a lot more movement than using Romeo, who, while well, I think is a fantastic player, is a little bit limited in on the attacking sense of the ball as well. Um, and, oh, wow, if you play Stuart Armstrong on the right-hand side against the top six, like, you do get a little bit of extra defensive quality. I think... Clearly, the international break was the genesis and, and proved to these boys how to press properly and when to press. And they, you know, they really work on, work on those automatisms and their sequences. And then the Arsenal game sort of proved it to themselves. You know, they, they were really, really bad in the defeat against West Ham. Uh, and it was one of those games where you just sort of screaming and shouting at the right back and going, oh, God, they're, they're done if they don't sort out this problem at that post. And, you know, the defeat against Newcastle was quite similar. For the most part, Southampton are playing really, really good football, and they're taking they're taking games to the opposition and making opposition players make have to make difficult decisions. And they've got Danny Ings, who is now a legitimate contender for the Golden Boot. And in that weird sort of, I don't want him to get England caps because I don't want him to get injured. But if you want England caps, you should get England caps. Yeah, it's, I think it's an anxiety that all of us have at Southampton fans is almost Danny Ings, you know. The, I, I think Ralph's been doing a really good job at, at kind of getting everything out of him, but then also getting him off in time before anything goes wrong and before, you know, he's squeezed a little bit too much out of him and, and got him injured. That does worry me that if he got, got in the England squad, that that could happen. Um, I've come up with, with what I want to happen though now, Carl. So basically he stays out of the England squad right until the summer. Then he's allowed to go off to the Euro championships along with James Will Prowse Um and then they can go and you know score some fantastic goals and bring the European Championships back home from Wembley to Wembley, oh. I guess. Yeah, that that would be good. It would be amazing. We still might be. Uh, I still don't know what I'm going to do for the Euros. I think I might work it, or I might ask for it. Enjoy your life as a football fan. 
But Danny Ings is in, in great form. He's in, he's in this, I will get round to writing about this, but not only is Danny, so Danny Ings is in this bizarre situation where he's scoring goals out of nothing, but he's also running the channels like, uh, unlike of any other striker in the league. And he's also dropping deep and playing like Central Mitchell, unlike anyone else. So his conversion rate, he's converting chances better than anyone else other than Oba at Arsenal. But you consider Oba is flanked by Nicolas Pepe and Meza Ozil trying to thread him through balls and whatnot. So Oba only really stands in the width of the penalty area and occupies the two centre backs, where Danny Ings is trying to occupy the left, the left back, the right back, and the two centre backs. Um, he has similar running totals to Jamie Vardy and similar running top speed to Jamie Vardy. But again, you consider Jamie Vardy has other players flanking him and Jamie Vardy's got a very robust uh, central midfield behind him and he's got you know, Wolford and Didi as that sort of stopper and that plug in defensive midfield so Jamie Vardy doesn't really drop deep he tends to just trip left and right when he wants when he wants to exploit for weakness so he's out shooting everyone other than other he's outrunning everyone other than maybe Vardy and then he's also dropping deep unlike absolutely anyone so he is a He's a glass cannon of a unicorn of a striker. And oh my God, he's so much fun to watch. And he's saving my money. Uh, he, he's, he's not saving my fancy team, unfortunately, because I have a policy of no Saints players because um, I don't want to curse <laughs> any. And as, as a result, as every other, you know, fancy football manager has him in their team, I'm starting to slowly drop out, you know, from, you know, first it was the top 100,000. Now it's... I'm down to like, you know, I'm only in the top half a million now, I think. It's, it's gone pretty dreadfully for me, Carl, I've got to be honest. But I'd much rather it was going well for Southampton and Danny Ings than it was going well for me in the fantasy football. So I'm OK with that. I'm OK with that. Um, one of the things which has really amazed me about Danny Ings this season is just his ability to sniff out when a chance is coming. Um, the, the amount of chances where it seems like he's chasing a lost cause and then something happens... Is, is just phenomenal and, and I don't quite know how he does this I think is, is this just because he's at the very top of the Hassan Hüttel press that you know as he's kind of charging down on the goalkeeper the goalkeeper looks up to pass to one of the central defenders and sees oh no they're being covered by Redmond and Long and then that's that split second of panic is where Danny Ings gets that opportunity and he's scored probably I think four goals from you know, nicking it off a keeper or blocking a pass from a keeper this season, which is is quite a lot from something that most people would consider chasing a lost cause. Yes. So you, you consider the goal against Liverpool where Adrian Morales played off his shin. The interesting thing there was the not, you know, that Adrian played a howler, but basically the very precise angle that Ings decided to chase the ball. So Ings doesn't run directly like, uh, you know, from the middle point of the clock to number 12 when he closes down the keeper's trench, he tries to run at an angle. So basically, he's offering the very annoying passing option to a goalkeeper. So you can see that most goalkeepers want a side foot, or you want a side foot to your right foot, which is, you know, the easy way to do it. And the way Ing runs at you, he's basically going, right, try it, because I'm going to stand in the way. And, you know, you're going to probably shin it off me, so now you've got to try and do a cross turn. Larice tried cross turning it, and he caught Larice, and then he and, uh, you know, Adrian smashed it off his shit. He's also really good at this sort of... One of the really interesting presses of Hustle now is they try and exploit this gap between the left centre-back and the left-back. 
So you will try, you will tend to get a Redmond or a Ward Prowse or whatever. He's always, always trying to stand in that gap whenever the centre back has the ball, and, and they're always sort of panic. The idea is when that centre back is trying to pass up the left back, if someone's stood in the way, the centre back will then go, all right, I'll pass to my central midfielder, to which there should be a Shoyberg or a Ward Prowse or, or whoever ready to beat them up and nick the ball and then pass it very, very quickly to Danny Ings, who's still up top. That was kind of working at the start of the season when they were playing in this midfield three. It didn't quite work because Romeo, you know, I think he's a very, very good attacker, but he's the most mobile and hasn't, you know, got the best through ball on him. But it's worked a lot better now with Troyberg. Troyberg now is, I think he's leading the Premier League now in, in uh, turnovers or basically winning possession back. Mm-hmm. I still like Troyberg to do a little bit more. I like him to do a little bit more when he wins the ball. Um, he's still very much cases, oh, I've won the ball and now I'm going to give it to someone else who's more talented whereas I'd like him to, oh, I've won the ball I'm going to try and dribble but hey, if it's working and they're winning that's what happens so you, you, you do get these goals there was a goal against uh, I want to say Palace and there was a goal against Newcastle where basically you just sort of saw it where the opposition lost the ball while trying to play out the back and then the ball is immediately given to Ings and Ings just gets a shot away, which when you're in the four wings, in, yeah, that works amazingly because yeah, you, you tend to be on target every single time. He had a really interesting battle of wits with Casper uh, Schmeichel. So before he got that winning goal, he had uh, two very, very good efforts blocked by Casper. He hit the crossbar twice in about 15 seconds, which gave me half half stations, and then he eventually got the winning goal with that you know, shot that Casper again got a hand. It was a really fun battle of uh, a talented number nine and a talented goalkeeper he's paid on his scouting. Yeah, I mean, even Match of the Day managed to pick up on this, didn't they? Because they noticed that Danny Ings tried to nutmeg Schmeichel in the first few minutes, and um, then he actually achieves it. He, he manages to nutmeg him for his winning goal at, at the end, which I still think is a little bit of a shame it clipped Schmeichel's leg as it went through. It would have been so much sweeter if it had just gone straight through without without grazing him. <laughs> but to be honest, it was pretty sweet anyway, having a, a victory against Leicester. Um, knowing all that we know from from the past, but um, I I suppose you know we'll, we'll probably talk about Ings a little bit more later on. Um, just to help my kind of uh, myself deal with the order of this, I want to get onto the FA Cup game um, quickly. No Denny Ings in this one. Uh, most of the Saints first team were were rested, uh, but James Will Prowse played uh, the match. I thought was absolutely immense. Um, Really interesting to see a couple of the younger guys coming in from the academy. Smallbone and Vokings getting their first um, first team starts and both getting a goal each as well. Um, Carl, I, I think you were quite impressed with uh, with Smallbone. Um, but I think, you know, for, for those Saints fans that weren't there, should we tell them a little bit about Vokings and Smallbone? And do you want to go first? You take one, I'll take the other. Sure thing. <laughs> Uh, so Jake Vokins is the, the left-back that's been talked about a lot this season, especially during Ryan Bertrand's three-week absence uh, at the start of the season after the loss against Bournemouth. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, the interesting about Vokins is he, he's you know, been in the academy ever since he's seven, I want to say. Um, originally born in Oxford. Uh, he's now 20 days. He used to be left winger, so he came to the academy as a left winger. I think it changed at the age of 15 and now plays left back. And you can see he used to be a left winger very much in the style of play. 
So he gets forward all the time. He's always trying to overlap and underlap his left winger and, and try and get into the final third. Uh, the goal he scored against Huddersfield is one of those really traps and sort of finishes. He, he properly whacked it and he went off the crossbar, which, you know, I think goals that go in off the crossbar just sounds better and should count for double. <laughs> uh, but he's in a very interesting position where I've asked Ralph about him two or three times and Ralph has said he's not ready for Premier League football, which I think is a, an interesting thing about his development. The hope for quite a few fans is basically focused would be the number two behind Ryan Bertram at left back, where it's what we found out is basically Bertram doesn't have a back at left back anymore because Bertram isn't quite the left back or uh, isn't quite as talented in 1v1 duel in the way that has to like. So, in a perfect hassle system, every subsequent player makes their attack. It's a very sort of rugby philosophy of I'm going to sort out the attack and the press and whatnot, and it, whatever happens most important that all of you make your tackles and you make your head. I can't teach you to do those things. Well, he, he does teach us to do those things. He's very good at taking a very, very slow um, methodical approach with Perkins and I think to uh, extent with Kevin Daniel. Um, so, you can see this every now and again when you watch Perkins that his positioning is just a little bit off and he does need, if he doesn't have a very vocal leader in uh, the back four, so when he plays today on the 23s, it's Christoph Clara. Christoph Clara is now on loan to a Polish side. But uh, he played in the FA Cup game with Maya Shida and with uh, Derek Lestriot, two centre-backs who were very quiet. So there were two or three times where Huddersfield managed to get forward because Oakland was sort of simply, you know, maybe five yards out of the place. Um, he played a really good game, but I don't think he'd be able to play that sort of game against the Premier League opposition. And I do think Premier League teams would probably exploit the space he does leave behind. So uh, maybe one for next season. Or, you know, providing the FA Cup draw is a little gentler. So obviously it's Spurs or Middlesbrough in the fourth round. If it's Middlesbrough, I'd probably expect Wilkins to start again, just to give such a little bit of a rest. And also, if you don't know who's going to come in at uh, the next month, yes. No. You rolled his eyes. <laughs> I th- you know, I think we probably will see another left-back coming in. Um, I'm kind of with you on this. Uh, with Vokins, I thought he looked very assured going forward. Um, interesting, you mentioned that he was a left winger before. I think you can see that he's he's got the skill, he's got the touch, he's got that kind of. Um, he's always looking forward. He always seems to be looking forward and, and going to attack. Um, but I, the other thing as well, I noticed from him, which I think is probably just an age and experience thing, is that he's not thinking quite as quickly as Bertrand as well. You know. <laughs> a move that might take Bertrand, you know, two touches of the ball to get going. It was taking Vokings, you know, four touches or five touches to get there. And I'm sure that comes with experience. And perhaps this is one of the things that Southampton, we've been pretty spoiled when it comes with left backs. Um, so I wasn't sure whether my standards are just too high or if, if this was a, a genuine problem for Vokings. But, you know, the fact that we've had Bertrand, Gareth Bale, Wayne Bridge, Franny Benali, if you want to go back uh, far enough in left-back positions, that, you know, we've, we've had some pretty pretty special left-backs. So, yeah, I think one for the future. Um, and, you know, hopefully he, he can get a couple more chances. Um, but I probably would be a little bit worried about him dealing with a really serious Premier League right-winger. Um Smallbone, however, I, I could kind of I could see him slotting into a Saints team in the in the Premier League, perhaps you know coming on as a substitution around about sixty minutes mark. Um, 
he seemed very assured on the ball, panicked a couple of times in the first half, but then, you know, he, he calmed down, he took his goal really, really well. Um, and he, he provided quite a good assist for the, the Shane Long goal, which was ruled out from VAR as well. So, I mean, what did you make of Smallbone? He was really neat and tidy. Um, perhaps not the authoritative do-everything-all-action midfielder that some football player fans like. So he's not, he's not really a number eight, sort of a box-to-box midfielder, but uh, there's a really good video of Smallbone when he's 16 years of age. I think it's maybe from 2017, but you can find on Southampton's YouTube site. And he says he models his he's, he says he models his game on uh, Andres Iniesta, which is that sort of. I mean, you look at him; he's not he's a he's very much a you know 19 year old body. So he's he's all deft touches, uh, really nice close control, great close control dribbling, um, and he's going to try and get past you by passing around you and doing some really nice neat passing triangles. So he took his goal really, really well. But I think what was also interesting was the way he set up Shane Long for Shane Long's uh, VAR overturned goal, basically. The ball comes into his path and he very, very quickly instinctively realises Shane Long's ahead of him just sort of deftly flicked onto Long's path and unfortunately Long couldn't stay on size before getting the, the, you know, the goal that he very desperately deserved away. Um, and I think that shows something really interesting about him. He's got phenomenal vision and he's got this incredible way of linking up uh, midfield and attack. So he played, he's most comfortable playing inside the midfield, but he played on the right for 2 2 2 uh, in the FA Cup. And I think at the moment, uh, I think the, the central midfield positions are, are covered by Torberger and by uh, Ward Carlson. I think if it's an injury, then it's going to be Armstrong. But I think. You know, I'm not looking forward right now. But uh, there's definitely a chance in, in the later stages of games, especially I think when Southampton start really snapping their authority in games and start winning games with yeah. a little bit more authority. I definitely think there's going to be time for them to get minutes in one of the central positions or perhaps uh, in one of the wide positions as well. Because, yeah, it, it's amazing how Southampton has, you know, when the team is 46, how many options they have in the tank. So they've got so many options now both in wide positions and in central positions. A nice, a nice problem for Ralph Hasselbaum. Yeah, it, it really is um, not a nice problem, though, for Smallbone, because it is hard to see him getting that, that opportunity unless, you know, as you say, Southampton really have some games where we're playing very, very authoritatively and it looks like there's nothing that we could do to potentially lose or, or draw. I think that would be when we're most likely to see Smallbone. Um, I also just wanted to point out that I thought James Ward-Prowse looked absolutely immense in that game. And in amongst the players that were selected for Southampton and against Huddersfield, he really looks like he's playing at a different level now. Um, and th- I mean, this is just such a joy. because Carl, we used to have conversations on this podcast time and time again. What is a James Ward-Prowse? What is the point in James Ward-Prowse? Yes, he's got great... Um, you know, free kicks and whatever, but we just could never really see him being the player that he is, that he's become now. And and this is all down to Ralph Hasenhutl as far as, as we can see. Yes. So he, he was a really interesting player before I, you know, before the season started, you know, I came to uh, join the athletic and I did my research about Southampton and I said, you know, top of my agenda is to figure out what on earth is James or the I sort of squinted and I said, I think he's a box-to-box midfielder. I think he's a number eight. He 
spent obviously quite a bit of the start. You know, he played in this, you know, when the, did the 3 5 2. He did a little bit with Romeo and it didn't quite work. And then obviously he played a little bit at right wing or right wing back when uh, fans were prepared to foul the play. But we decided to use Ward Prowse because Ward Prowse basically has just a great engine and great defensive capabilities. I did have this conversation with Ralph just. After the second international break, when I said you've moved Ward Prowse to central midfield, do you think that's his best position? Uh, yeah, yeah. He goes, yeah, you know, he's, he's best as playing as a number eight, and I really enjoy the balance. And then I asked, you know, they came up again um, ahead of the game against Leicester when they asked me again about what, what do you think about, you know, the, the upturn of Ward Prowse's machine. He offered me running numbers on like basically anyone at his fitness levels and his uh, recovery levels. They're basically top six. And it's quite the interesting there. You describe him as a number six, which is sort of the. If you, I know that in England, a number six is a centre is a, is a back, but obviously Ralph being Austrian and uh, influenced heavily by German football, and number six for him is a defensive midfielder, and sort of the maybe not quite a sitting defensive midfielder, but the one who orchestrates everything. So the interesting thing about Ward Prowse now is he's he's got to this sort of. And please understand what I'm about to say as a compliment, but he's got into a nice Jordan Henderson type role for Southampton where he is orchestrating the midfield and he's also creating loads of flick-ons and loads of um, second assists for Southampton's attack. And then, you know, you get, you get the asset of his set-piece delivery. Um, so something I looked into at half-time against Aston Villa was that when Ralph Hassel was at Ingolstadt in Germany, so the job he had before Leipzig, so in his first Bundesliga season in charge of Ingolstadt, 60% of Ingolstadt's goals came from set pieces. So when Hassel will find a way of really explaining set pieces, he really, really handled that. Uh, so the interesting thing there was his set piece taker there was Pascal Gross, who's out of Brighton, whereas now he's got, you know, a, I'm going to say, a superior set piece taker. And he's developed a system where there's a lot of free kicks and a lot of corners being delivered into the near post where, you know, you can head it directly towards goal, or you're getting guys like Shane Long or Jack Stevens or getting click-ons for players behind to try and bond it in our... So that's in our... You know, the, the primary way that we wish to attack is always going to be from the front right to, to create, you know, don't have a playmaker where you can turn everyone into a playmaker with a threat. But they are now developing a very nice system. We're going to try and beat up this too, and I think things will probably be better. I think... From now on, you know, the, the first two names on the team sheet, well, the first three names on the team sheet now are Danny Ings, Jan and Jan Lederick. Yeah, and uh, I wonder if Jack Stevens might be the fourth name on the team sheet as well, um, the way things are going for him. Um, so anyway, listeners, if you want to write in and complain about Carl uh, comparing James Wilpouse to uh, Jordan Henderson, it is of obviously the normal email address, saintsofsupodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> I noticed it was one of the things that, that Jack Lang probably picked up as well, which I think, you know, if you haven't watched Saints for a long time and you come and you, you watch them now and you see James Will Prowse, you think, oh, wow, this this guy is doing something, you know, different, something way above what, what, he, was, what he was able to do before. Or seemingly, I mean, I guess he's always been able, but, you know, the, I think the, the conversation that Ralph had had with him last season, which I, I suppose the, the peak James Will Prowse last season was when he was instrumental in getting Wilfred Zahar sent off in the game at <laughs> Palace. 
which was which was so much fun for those of us there at, at the game just to see James Ward-Prowse on the massive wind-up and getting that one. Um, and, you know, it's just great to see goals, to see a bit of needle. He, he's winning tackles all over the shop. And as you mentioned, his, his running stats are absolutely insane. He just, he doesn't seem to get out of breath or anything. He, he must be putting in so much effort and be so fit to be able to do this. Um, and, I mean, you've mentioned rugby a couple of times. I think James Will Prowse is kind of like that rugby player that was on the opposition side. He was pretty small. You weren't too worried about trying to run past them with the ball. And then when they hit you, they're all kind of like bones and elbows and pain. And I, I think he's, he's Southampton's version of that. The the guy doesn't look are you, like Are much. you comparing Ward Prowse to Johnny Wilkinson? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I've never played rugby against Johnny Wilkinson. I'm comparing James Ward-Prowse against some some guy in some rugby team in my childhood who hurt me at some point. <laughs> <laughs> he, he is he's a phenomenal athlete. You can play two you can play two or three games a week. Yeah, um, I, I think him and Hoiberg now is a really good balance where they both take turns and who wants it'd be good if both of them start getting a little bit more goals from open play. But the way you know it's working for now, so what power to him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now we'll get on to the um, the Leicester game, Carl. Um, and some people have, I, I, I think Ralph Hasenhut will talk this up as the best away performance of the season. Um, a lot of people have been talking about the Southampton performance. I think there's been a lot of interest in this game over, you know, a normal Southampton game because of the 9-0. And thankfully, I don't have a 9-0 swear jar, Carl, like you. So, I mean... <laughs> My wallet is staying where it is at the moment, but I think you must be saving up a fair amount. Um, there was so much interest in this game, you know, because of the last result and because of Southampton's kind of upturn in fortunes. And I think probably all around the country, football pundits and writers have maybe sensed that Southampton could get something from this. Um, I wasn't wholly convinced. I thought we'd put in a much better performance, but actually, despite all of the goals that Leicester had ruled out, I wonder if 2-1 does Southampton a little bit of an injustice. I, I think, you know, having watched the game, I think we could have taken even more from this. I th- thought we were pretty much fantastic. Oh, yeah. There was there was definitely... Southampton left at least one extra goal on the table. There was, you know, James Will Prowse hitting the crossbar twice in 10 seconds. Um, there was a great... Again, it was that great thing, much like at Chelsea, where it's all the first 10 minutes, you're going to use this game bad. Like, no, this game is bad. It's, oh my God, Southampton are doing a job. Which, unfortunately, was undone by uh, some lackadaisical defending at right back, which Jamie Vardy explained the opening goal. Yeah. But I think what's remarkable is, you know, not only did Southampton outplay this lesser side and in their own home patch and, and outpress them and, and force that lesser team to do things they really didn't want to do, but they came from behind to win that game, which is something that Southampton don't really do away from home. Uh, which Ralph pointed out, he said, it's really good. We came from behind away from home, which he was really, really proud of. You look at, they really got the lessons from the 9-0 against Leicester City, so against Leicester. Mary, Ben Chua and Harvey Barnes absolutely destroyed them. So Leicester sort of realized that they forage down the right and then changed it really, really quickly down the left. Um, they can exploit the sort of crab-like press that, you know, got scuttled from side to side. Well, why do it? So basically, right, let's not get too sucked into anyone's side because they're going to try and get this ball to Ben Chilwell and Ben Chilwell's going to try and bomb forward. Chilwell lost the ball 20 times in the first half. 
Wow. Uh, and there's one of those bets where, oh my God, Ben Chawell's having a shot. And we saw, you know, the two, three journalists at Restbox saying, Ben Chawell's having a shot. And I'm going, no, Chawell's not having a shot. It's because he's getting absolutely clamped down by uh, Redmond and by Bertrand. Or by, by anyone else who's running around and in the pitch. Like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to let you forward. There's a great bit where, in the second half, where Chawell lost the ball again. So he gets the ball, he forages up to the halfway line and he tries playing a through ball. And then it gets intercepted. And I was like, oh, he's lost the ball again. He goes, no, he didn't lose the ball. The ball got intercepted. It's a subtle difference. They got intercepted by two Southampton players basically sliding in to, to cut it out, which is what the hustle press is. It's this idea of, and this is the, the I think, the annoying thing for a lot of Southampton fans, which is basically, no, it's not less than a bad day. It's Southampton on a good day. And they need to have a bad day. Southampton comprehensively outplayed Leicester. Uh, and, you know, they, they earned a slot first on match today because of it, because you, you saw Danny Murphy go, look at Leicester hunting, being hungry and um, you know, pressing in triangles. Sorry. Look at Southampton pressing, hunting in triangles and, and being hungry. And that's what Southampton are doing now. They they are out running and out playing. You see that, you know, aren't taking Southampton as seriously as they should do. And long may it continue not taking Southampton seriously. So. It's, uh, it's, it's a very, very strange thing to have Southampton first on match of the day. It's certainly the first time it's, it's happened this season. I can't even remember the last time we had this. But, but with the focus on Southampton and, and what we're doing. And it, it, was, it was quite interesting to see some of the pundits actually picking out stuff that we do. And I'm trying to work out, is this because it's the first time they've ever watched Southampton? Because they don't normally spend any time watching the games that they know are going to be shown at five minutes to midnight and are going to last about two minutes. Um, but it's, you know, or is it just that Southampton have got so much better at it that the interest is developing? Lots of people have written about how well the press is working because it's, it, it surprised me. I've been a little bit probably despondent about the quality of match of the day um, pundits over the years, but they actually picked up on some things that we're doing. I think it's a lot easier to do it when some of the winning are in the ascendancy because. The... <laughs> Southampton have wanted to play this style of football for about a year now. was always wanted to play this style of football. He always wanted to play the 4 2 2 That was known the moment he turned up. He always wanted to play a high-pressing system. But I think the press was uncoordinated when he first arrived, and it got, it's only really started sorting itself out in the last couple of weeks. And I think that's the sort of thing. The things Hassel always wanted from his side and the things his side has been able to do have been two separate entities now they're finding something. What one of the things as well, which I, I want to pick up as well, and, and talking about Southampton on the ascendancy, is um, your friends at Statsbomb have produced a little graph, which was shared by a chap called James York, looking at the um, XG difference table. Um, so he was looking at it from a, a Tottenham point of view, looking for the Marino era XG, but Southampton a a third there. And, you know, he said, like, oh, you know, went looking for it, came back, same old story, Liverpool, Man City and Southampton are the dominant team in the last nine, ten games, which is, <laughs> we're not often mentioned in the same way <laughs> as, as uh, Liverpool and Man City. Um, but the, the XG, um, you've mentioned the pressing stats, there's a lot of statistical data that shows that Southampton should be performing or, or should have been getting results or performing at, at the kind of level that, that they have been over the last few weeks. Um, if you, I think if you look at the understat XG Premier League table, Southampton should be in seventh. 
if they'd you know converted all the chances they should have saved all the shots that they should have etc um were we just were we all wrong to be worried about relegation you know back in november back in october because things are going right now things are clicking um Ralph has talked about it. Stuart Armstrong has mentioned that he feels like the team have bonded on the pitch and that they understand what they're doing and they're working together better. And I think we can all see it when we watch the side now playing. But there was some statistical evidence to say that it should have been happening earlier and we should have been trusting Ralph. But then we also have stuff like the Everton game and the Leicester game at home, which show us that that there were definitely things that were wrong as well. So... I'm trying to find the reason, as it were, because we're not, <laughs> you know, I don't feel like we're doing anything really, really different, but it feels like it's really clicking. And is it just the fact that it's fine margins? There's a few things that have got a little bit better. Um, you know, turning a few things, making a few things, a few percentage points better has the end result of being able to go to Stamford Bridge and dominate Chelsea being able to go to Leicester, dominate Leicester, being able to beat Tottenham at home and not really allow the likes of Harry Kane and Ali to, to have a proper sniff at goal. Um, it's, it's kind of that marginal gains thing. Is uh, Am I right on that? Or or is this just, is it luck? Is it, are we doing, are we doing anything like really momentously different? <laughs> it's, it's what, what's happened is it's a really interesting look at how uh, football statistics can be very easy to misinterpret. So even when Southampton were bad, they were doing, they were scoring quite well in, you know, the, the futuristic football statistics. So, they, you know, they're pressing per defensive action. And they were in the top six for that. So, because, because Hassel wants his team to press and because, you know, he tries to get his team to play on the front foot, so Hampton always look good in, uh, you know, the sort of optostats that uh, spreadsheet nerds like me like to talk about. So, they, you know, Hampton always had really, really good pressing. So, they always press often but the, the but when you looked at it, the press was on all sides. So it was one of those things of yes, yeah, Southampton press really really high up the pitch. But the problem was, you know, you had opposition teams that just play the ball over the top. Well, what West Ham did was basically, oh, you want to press? It's fine. Just play over you. Or Burnley did it. Just play over you. Or you get Liverpool. You know, we're just going to pass through you because we've got teeny one else. The most press resistant midfield in the Premier. So that was one of those things where what the eye test was doing, what the stats were doing, were two very different things. Whereas now you're seeing the basic stuff that it's quite still quite hard to evaluate by a stat is being sorted out. So, oh, you know, people, people who've seen my uh, tweets and my articles where I kept banging on about the back post. Why on earth can you not defend the back post? There's no stat to really evaluate the back post. I can give some shot graphs up and say, look at this cluster of shots here. But that's still quite hard to say. Every team is very clearly going to be upset with uh, and go to the back post. But now things have improved. They've sort of figured out this back post problem. But there, Stuart Armstrong coming in, especially against the bigger side, really adds a little bit more balance. Because Musa Janeko, while a fantastic forward, I think is a little bit over-ambitious when he plays on the right-hand side, which leaves, I don't want to say leaves Cedric vulnerable, because Cedric should be able to deal with the stuff that's in front of him. But I think, I think that there's just a little bit too much of a space, and I think Armstrong gives a little bit of balance there. And an additional thing, so when Southampton were bad, they were still getting good stats in the XGs and the pressing numbers and the passing sequences. But they were also making some really critical mistakes. I think I said on the previous podcast, 
watching Southampton play is like listening to an orchestra, and then whenever they concede the goal, it's like hearing a really bad flat note. Like Southampton were bad in really short, pronounced moments, and you're like, oh, for the love of, you know, like a goalkeeper coming out, flapping his hand out across, and then a striker squatting it, or uh, off, you know, Jan Benarek or Vestergaard mistiming a header, or if Jack Steven slips over and Akibar went through and got across it. That's when Southampton were bad. There's no real stats to develop that. And there was a really, really big risk that Southampton were going to get relegated because those things keep happening frequently for teams that get relegated for reasons that you can't really explain. You can get sucked into this vortex where unlucky things happen to you and then you lose confidence, so therefore more unlucky things happen to you. But thankfully, the international break came at the right time. They, you know, righted the ship and they, they were all now bought into this sort of wealth ball old hassle football of if we press in an organised manner we can beat anyone and I think they are in this legitimate state where they can beat nearly everyone in the Premier League if they play with this pressing style so no longer have a reason to be afraid anymore Yeah, the, I, the, the fear factor I think has been a, a really big thing and that belief and I, su- I suppose the kind of Leicester and Everton games almost seem to be a result of the players not trusting in the system I, th- I think they'd kind of, uh, at that point, there was a little bit of anxiety and perhaps they weren't pressing quite as hard as they th- they were before. And, and the um, it seems like the, the Arsenal game and you know, the international break, they seem to fi- to figure that out. Um, interesting what you say about Stuart Armstrong and kind of helping Cedric down the right-hand side. I, I hadn't noticed that myself, but now you talk about it, that makes total sense and you know, goes some way to explaining why we haven't been conceding so many things at, at, at the back post. Um, interestingly, as well, um, I'm not sure. Sh- one of the things which I noticed in the Villa game is they put Grealish up against Cedric, and actually, I prefer Cedric one on one with a attacking winger trying to stop them. I'd have been much more worried if they had Grealish on the opposite side putting in crosses to the back post for some big lump to come in. So th- there's been a few points where I think the opposition have got their tactics wrong and to our advantage. Um, one of the one of the the tweets we've got from one of our listeners that I want to bring up is um someone uh, has mentioned that they want to start a conversation about Jack Stevens potentially getting into the England squad, which might make you chuckle. Um, and then one of the the responses, which I thought was quite interesting, is saying that Jack Stevens has always been a good player for eighty five minutes every week, um, but it was always his man that would score, let his performance down. He's now turned into a ninety seven minute man, no letting his man go, and so becomes a star. Do you agree with that? I, I kind of agree with that. I've always thought Jack Stevens is a really good football player, but with, you know, a couple of minutes of madness that, that cost him. <laughs> and he seems to have removed that from his game, which means that we can now, when we're talking about Jack Stevens, we're not talking about yeah that moment when he slips. We're talking about that moment when he picks out a wonderful 40, 50 yard pass up to Danny Ings, who then goes and scores a goal. He... So he was one of my pieces I wrote last week and how he's helped the team. And I said, um, to put it really nicely, he was a little bit nice or too much of a nice boy Yeah. Uh, previously where, I, don't, I mean, he, he, he shouts and screams a lot and uh, he, he doesn't mind putting a tackle in, but he, does, he did play with a little naivete that made you worry what a striker like Jamie Vardy would do. So, you know, Jamie Vardy came through non-league, you, you know, I'm talking Southampton fans, so they all know what Jamie Vardy did to Virgil van Dijk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's that sort of thing of, 
against a, a more cunning or slightly more nefarious striker, there was the worry that Jack Stevens would get exploited. He had that little run in February 2018, I want to say, where I think it was the, he, uh, he like gave away a penalty, um, let a winner go through against Cardiff, and then he just got embarrassed against Arsenal before he got substituted as well. And you're like, oh, maybe this isn't the thing for him. But he's given some really interesting interviews about how he basically he needs to go back to Cornwall to reset and just uh, when the football gets a bit too much for him, he just spends some time watching cricket or, or watching rugby or, you know, enjoying stuff that isn't football. And he seems to, he seems a very articulate, eloquent man who, 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 you know, he loves Southampton and he loves the fact he's playing for this team. And he, it does get to it. I think he's got a really good moment now where my friend Paul, he, he runs a podcast that used to be known as the Rankcast. Uh-huh. So a Manchester United podcast. He's a, he's, a, he's a therapist. And he says, one of the interesting misnomers about defending is this idea that a defender switches off. Because when you consider what defending is and how you have the same focus for 90 minutes, you're not switching off. You're just having a breather or you're just blinking. Um, but it's one of those sorts of everyone switches off when you're playing a game of football. Um, but Steven seems to like finally iron this thing out. And I think a lot of that comes from playing in a consistent back line. So Steven now knows no matter what happens, if he's going to be stood next to Jan Benderick and he's going to be flanked by Bernatrin uh, and, and set until, you know, unless no one comes in over January. I think that, that stability helps him figure out where he needs to stand and figure out what he needs to do. And I think what's really interesting is that Steven is the one who directs that back line. He's the one yelling at people down left hand right he's a really good footballer he's got he's really good on the ball as you saw with his assist and his passing and his passing range is really good obviously quite a few fans think he might be unlocked at defensive midfield I'm not one for that Um, but the great thing is he's constantly in dialogue not only with his back four but he's also in dialogue with the central midfielders in front of him he talks all the time with Hoiberg I say talk he yells at Hoiberg all the time when when they're not giving him the appropriate defence because Steven, he knows his weaknesses and he knows that if the central midfielders in front of him do their job and if the fullbacks do their job, he doesn't really have to, you know, have those weaknesses revealed. So that's another really interesting thing as well. Um, yeah, it, it's great. This, you know, the tiny asterisks that were involved in quite a few Southampton players are slowly being erased because they're now playing in a system where they're not only playing to their strengths, but they're they're complementing each other's weaknesses and they're basically hiding each other's weaknesses by, with these complementary pairings. So Benarek and Stevens, basically, they both, they're both playing in a lot more of a compact shape. They're blocking a lot more shots and you're not getting this thing that you had at the start of the season where they're running backwards or towards their own goal, which I think there are very few defenders in this world where when they're running towards their own goal can recover. So they're now in this place where they're not being to run with the balls over the top. And this press now has, you know, sort of found a way to be resistant to aerial bombardment. So this is why you're now getting clean sheet. This, I like this. Yeah, this is, this is good. I, I'm just so happy, Carl. This is the 
probably one of the happiest podcasts we've ever done I think you know with the three victories um it was kind of reflected in our emails as well I had a couple of emails one from James Ketchell who took his six-year-old daughter to the footy for the first time for the Huddersfield game um he thinks that the atmosphere at St Mary's could be part of the improvement to the side and I've had Graham Frampton email in he's describing the team as musketeers so he's noticed a big lift in the team spirit and the collective efforts of the team and he's wondering if his ninth position which he thought was very much in jeopardy his prediction for the ninth um, might not be far off where we end up Cole you promised me last time that the next time you come on we know a lot more about where Southampton were going to finish we've now seen us play every team in in the league Um, we were looking better after 19 games than we were after 15 games but now I think we've had 22 and we're, and we're looking even better. Now we're only 28 points, 16 games remaining. I think the Saints fans are looking at the 40 points as the first target that we have and we only need 12 more points to, to achieve that. So should we be thinking about Europa League or is that getting carried away? Should we focus on the 40 <laughs> points? Um, where, where are we now, Southampton? Where, what, what sort of team is Southampton? Where should they be in the league at the end of the season? So they're 12th now, and at the start of the season, I predicted 12th. Um, I talked to one of their comm team, I remember walking in and said, I think you're going to finish 12th. And they're, oh, thank you very much. I um, a fan from right at the start of the season, uh, Adam Blackmore, asked a bunch of Southampton fans, do they think that I'm going to finish between 9th and 14th? To which there was a resounding yes, or you know, really Hustle himself said, if I finish 10th, it would be a massive achievement. And I think what's happening is that is coming to pass. You know, come to part. So they, you know, they have that rotten fixture where they're opening nine games with this. Oh God, that was a gauntlet game. Okay, and they've sort of got through that, and they've now had a you know a, a gentler run of fixtures, and they've beaten the teams they want to beat. And then now the fixtures got a little bit harder. They've managed to beat those teams as well because they're now high in confidence. I think um, Liverpool will be a really interesting test because I think if Castle will take the game to this Liverpool side and if I'm going to take this game to Liverpool and play you know, with this high pressing system and really try and disrupt they can get a draw at the very least they can really give Liverpool a really good game and I think that that could be an interesting game as to whether Southampton are going to be you know 14th to 12th or 14th to 10th in comfortable table or if they really want to make a push for the, for, for the top half of the table and really you know sneak into those Europa League spaces I don't want to get I don't want to say something for Europa yet, but I think the top half is now definitely within grasp. Hustle himself says he's not aiming for 40 points, but very curiously said he's going for 36. So he said that that 36, 36 is when he's going to start thinking about what position he wants to aim for. Uh, I asked him after Leicester, I said, what's next for you? And he goes 31 points and then 34 points and then 37 points. And he laughed at me. I think, yeah, they're, they're taking it one step at a time. I don't think anyone should be, you know, renewing their passports so they can go in Europe League matches just yet. I still think they're going to finish 12 or there or thereabouts, which is, again, amazing, fantastic achievement. It's quite nice. I've stopped looking at uh, championship results in terms of future employment, and I'm like, cool, great. I'm going to have a nice conversation with my landlord soon. and be like, I'm staying in Southampton. Oh, that, that, that would be wonderful, yeah. I mean, I, I think we can... We can certainly reach um, Ralph's 36 points that he's looking for um, in the not-too-distant future. Um, I'd, I'd actually left Liverpool off my list of next games. I didn't want to you know, 
start to worry Saints fans, but we've got Wolves at home, um, Palace away. Um, those are two fixtures that I think Saints fans would normally look at and think that, you know, we'd expect us to be putting in quite a good result, uh, um, quite a good performance and maybe getting the results. So um, we could potentially see the the, the run continuing. Um, Liverpool game, I think, will be interesting. But it's funny, I don't think we ever do really, really badly against Liverpool, perhaps with one League Cup game that I can remember being there for a fair while back. So be interesting to see how we get on against them. Anfield is a little bit harder than, than playing them at, at St Mary's. Um, one... More thing, Carl, you, you've met a particular Southampton legend in recent weeks that I know you hadn't met before. Do we have a little bit of time to talk about your, your meeting of Matthew Letizia before we say ta-ta? <laughs> yes, yes. So last Thursday I met Matt Letizia in, in Romsey and we had a very fun afternoon where we basically got up a whole bunch of crazy things. Um, some of my choosing, some of his choosing, I asked for the Matt Letizia perspective. And we had a lovely conversation about penalty taking. So Letizia uh, has talked to me a little bit about how you take a penalty and uh, who takes a good penalty and who doesn't take a good penalty. And hopefully that will be uh, live on the Athletic, if not this week, but uh, at some point next week. I hope you will uh, subscribe and read on because I think touch on wood, it should be the start of a, a fun little uh, collaboration series between myself and Letizia this season. Oh, really? Oh, there's there's a, little, there's a little kind of hint at hint at something interesting. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you've probably also noticed that Matthew Letizia has been putting out a, a podcast as well with uh, Ricky Lambert and James Beattie being on on there as well. So they've been quite quite good fun to listen to. Um, so, Carl, I, I think we've come to the end of our hour now. I don't want to keep you any longer. You've probably got another Barocca or Lucaze to look look to you. <laughs> Had had some fun in uh, the big smoke yesterday. Um, Carl, thank you very much for joining us. Um, listeners, thank you very much for listening. Of course, if you want to get in contact with the Saints FC Podcast, it's saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com or at saintsfcpodcast on Twitter. Uh, we love hearing from you, so do let us know what you think about this episode and anything that you want us to discuss. Um, Carl, thank you very much. Um, so it's goodbye from me and... It's goodbye from me. There uh, we go. Can, uh, find me on Twitter at Anchorman616 uh, and I'll be three articles a week on The Athletic in depth Southampton stuff. Um, please forgive me. I am chasing transfer news as best I can. Southampton are very, very good at playing their cards close to their chest. <laughs> so it takes a little bit of time. Well, I'm, 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 I'm doing my research. <laughs> I think you need to do some kind of like secret squirrel ninja stuff, Carl, to... to exploit um you know southampton's kind of closeness when it comes to transfers i will start just hiding in bushes yeah we'll see what i can find marcelo bielsa style in the bushes outside stay oh, forward yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay brilliant well thank you very much listeners uh we're going um tune in next time we'll have tom back at some point um after his paternity leave um and of course if you want to wish him some congratulations you can do that on the email or on twitter as well so off we go. All right then. <laughs>